Good morning. Good to see you. If you will, please take your Bible and look to Nehemiah chapter 2. And it is good to see each of you this morning. I'd like to begin with a question. You can tell I've been out of school too long this summer, so I'm ready to give a quiz. So I will give you a quiz. Here it is. One question. What makes you impatient or tempts you to be impatient more than anything else? Think about that. And probably the answer is what first came to your mind right then. But what makes you impatient or tempts you to be impatient? You got it? Turn to your neighbor and share with them, unless it is your neighbor, share with them um, what, uh, what it is. Go ahead, share, share what, what is it that makes you impatient or tends to make you impatient? Yeah, I like some of you are whispering it in the ear. You don't want anybody else to hear that. As uh, I have to be honest with you, um, with me on that one, it's almost an unanswerable thing because um, I'm easily impatient. And so uh, my wife can tell you that, and she's the most patient person in the world. So that's, uh, um, I'm so impatient that um, I'm expecting things to be done before they're even supposed to be done. That's how impatient I am. And so it's, uh, it's a bad thing for me sometimes. But um, when we look at Isaiah, um, and we're looking at Nehemiah, but Isaiah said these words in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, Zephaniah, and we looked at Zephaniah chapter 3, and in Zephaniah, there again, the Lord instructed his people through his prophet Zephaniah to wait on him. And we talked about three aspects of waiting. We talked about that we as believers, we need to wait expectantly, we need to wait patiently, we need to wait faithfully. And when we look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah exercised his patience in waiting on God from what we saw last week as we began our study in Nehemiah in chapter 1, where he heard the news from his brother and, and his brother's friends about the conditions of the people of God and the city of God, Jerusalem. And we saw his response to this, that he was greatly distressed. He, he mourned and grieved and wept and fasted and prayed and day and night. He was doing this because of his desire for the blessing upon the people of God and his desire for the glory of God and the upholding of God's reputation before the nations. And so we see as we look in this passage that it has been four months, four months that he has been waiting on God to give him the opportunity to act upon what he prayed about in chapter one. And finally, God gives him this opportunity when he comes before the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, which Nehemiah had been serving 
as the cupbearer. And it, it appears that he had been the cupbearer from the time that, um, that Artaxerxes had been in office, or not in office, but on the throne. And so he had served him for many, many years. And so when we look at this passage this morning, we're looking in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 10, and the structure is pretty straightforward. It's really set up with the two settings. There are two settings here, and they, they give us really the structure of this passage. The first eight verses show us Nehemiah's interaction with King Artaxerxes. And so the, the greater part of this passage is dealing with what God did through Nehemiah and what Nehemiah did toward this king and then what the king did in response to Nehemiah. And then at the last part of it, we see the last two verses, 9 and 10, talk about what were the results of God's working in Nehemiah in relationship to the king. And it's a simple outline, and today I'd like us to look at four things as we look at this passage. The first thing is the emotions that Nehemiah felt. Second, the courage that Nehemiah displayed. Third, the favor Nehemiah received. And finally, the enemy Nehemiah awoke. And so let's look at the emotions Nehemiah felt, and read with me, if you will, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Several years ago, I read this quote, and I found it very interesting, written by Ben Myers. He wrote, where evangelical churches theologize happiness and ritualize the smile, and believers are spiritually, or sad believers are spiritually ostracized. Sadness is the scarlet letter of the contemporary church, embroidered proof of a person's spiritual failure. Now, while Meyer's words might be a bit strong, I can tell you it's been my experience, and my experience has all been in the church. I've told you this since the day I was born. And it is really true what he's getting at that our message today is that if you are a Christian that is truly a faithful Christian, a, an obedient Christian, one who is living life as a Christian ought to live his or her life, then you will be happy. Everything will be great for you and you'll be rejoicing and smiling and that is the Christian life. I do remember this from my childhood. One of the first songs I remember being taught as a child is the song called Happiness is the Lord. And the words were prevalent. I found happiness all the time. That's a part of that song. Happiness all the time. I remember my first church. I was 23 years old. 
I had started a seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in January, and I started preaching at this church in March and became their pastor on Mother's Day in May. But one of the songs that was one of their favorite songs, and they sung this just about every service at the end of the service, and it was called, I Found the Happy Side of Life. And here are some of the lyrics. I found the happy side of life. With Jesus as my Savior, I found the way. This is my favorite part. Rolling along, singing a song every single passing day. That's the Christian life. That's what it must be if you are living right with God. Rolling along, singing a song each and every happy day. Everything is perfect if you are a believer. Life just goes the way you want it to go. However, we come into this rude reality of having to live life in this world, in this fallen world, as fallen individuals ourselves. And so what happens is we come very quickly to find out that sadness is very much a part of the human experience. And that things are often difficult. Things don't always go our way, and not every day is rolling along singing a song each and every happy day, because not each and every day is happy. And there are difficulties in life. And what we do, we paint a picture that if you're not living this way, if this is not what you're experiencing, then there must be something wrong with you. Because how could you not be happy rolling along singing a song every day if Jesus is your Savior? And so obviously, there's something wrong with you if you are experiencing unhappiness rather than happiness. It is interesting it says this happened in the fourth month, and I mentioned, or, or in the month of Nisan, which was four months after Nehemiah found out the condition of the people of God and discovered that they had become a reproach before the nations. And we see here that it says that he was sad before the king. And the king noticed his sadness. For four months, we have every reason to believe that while he had done his best to hide his grief from the king, he was experiencing this grief ongoing because of the news he had heard about his people and because of its effect on the nations in regard to who God is and the people of God, who they are in light of their God. And so what are, we, what are we to make of this? One of the things I would say here is that we need to be very honest about life. We need to be honest in the church about life. And that sometimes life can be very difficult. In fact, for a great many people every day, is very difficult. And there are hardships that happen because of accidents, 
there are hardships that happen just because that it's the condition of the situation that may, someone may be born with and live with their entire lives. On the other end of it, um, it, it comes with aging. And it's a, it's a terrible thing, but it's a true thing that aging is just another way of pointing to slow death, that we are dying and we will die. Um, I thought about this yesterday. Um, there was this commercial that was very prevalent. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if it's because I don't watch as much TV as I once did, which I don't, but also it may be just because it's an old commercial. But they would show this um, elderly person falling down, and they would say, I've fallen, and I can't get up. Well, um, just yesterday, I cut the grass, got into the shower, and I had all this grass on, on my legs. I wore shorts, believe me or not. You don't want to see that, but I did. It's the only color I have in my legs is when I get grass on them, okay? And you don't, that's all the picture you need right there. But I was um, getting into the shower, and the next thing I know, I'm, sta I'm standing, and the next thing, I am flat on my back, and I just slipped and fell. And I, I yelled out because I didn't, it hurt, but I didn't know how, how much I had hurt myself. And Ann came running in to help me, and then flashes of that commercial as I'm laying there waiting for her went in front of me. I've fallen, and I can't get up. And so I said, so this is what it is. This, this is my future right here. If I, if I survive this one, there's more coming. And there it is. But it is a part of life. And by the way, I don't think I broke anything. Um, the only thing is I'm sore usually, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> so maybe I did. And it's, it's not anything that I'm not used to. Um, but the deal is that difficulties... Sadness is a part of life, and we need to be honest about that with people, honest with ourselves about that, and it doesn't make us less spiritual to be saddened by, thing, by things. I will say this, we, we have two things in the church that we're afraid of. We're afraid of being sad or discouraged. And we don't want to, we want to say that that's not a part of the Christian life. And the idea of, of anger and hatred. And we say that's not a part of the Christian life. If they're not a part of the Christian life, then we are not holding up the very characteristics of God himself. Now, I wouldn't say God is discouraged, but often God is not pleased by what goes on in this world. And neither should we. And as far as hatred goes, we should not hate people, but we should hate our sin. And we, we get to the point to where we think this is something that's no part of us. If it's not, we're not really like Christ because Christ hates sin. God hates sin so much that he gave his life. Jesus gave his life because of sin. And we saw the wrath of God on sin when Jesus bore it on the cross. And so these are realities. They can be taken out of, uh, out, out of a healthy way of understanding what the Bible teaches. But what we've done is to be unhealthy and saying that they don't exist at all and should not exist among Christians. And it's just not true. And so Nehemiah here is saddened. He's, he's grieved. 
And we've talked about what is going on here. Now, why was it difficult? Why was he hiding this from the, the king? We're not sure why, but there are a couple of good possibilities. One is this. In ancient times, people who served the king needed to look good and act like they were happy serving the king. Why? Because they were supposed to be a manifestation of the radiance of the king. And so they should, want, they should just be grateful that they're in the king's presence. And so to show sadness before the king could be something very serious to bring about the death of that individual because they should be glad to have the privilege to be in the king's presence. So that may be one possibility that he, he, he was hiding it for that reason. Another possibility is if, if we don't know what uh, the particular day it was, but the month of Nisan was the month of the new year, not only for the Persians, but also for the, the people of Israel. And so many scholars believe that what we see happening here is as uh, Nehemiah is serving this wine to the king, and we see that the queen is with him, as we read on in the passage, that this may have been a time of celebration that was going on, and in truth, that uh, he wasn't celebrating. In fact, we all know this, that when times when we've had grief and had times of, of loss and sorrow, that uh, holidays where we're used to celebrating can be very difficult times for us when we realize the loss of loved ones that have gone on or, or, or a serious situation that's going on, and it's very difficult to celebrate when you know loved ones are suffering at the same time. And so that may have been the situation. We don't know exactly the reason why he didn't want to, um, he didn't feel like celebrating, except we know he was sad about the condition of his people. And this is what is brought, brought um, forth. And so when the king finds out, notice this in verse 2. He says, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Notice what Nehemiah uh, writes here. Then I was very much afraid. And that's another thing. Should we be afraid in Christ? We should not. Are we human beings that get afraid? Absolutely. And so the Lord understands our fear. How many times do we see in the scriptures where someone is where an angel of the Lord or the Lord himself is saying, fear not, do not be afraid? Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he knows we're human and we get afraid. It is a part of who we are. In fact, I told you I take care of dogs. Dogs get afraid. It's just a, a thing that living beings have in them, fear. And it, it can come on any of us. And it can paralyze us if we're not careful. And so fear comes upon him. He's very, And it says not just a little afraid, but very much afraid. He is afraid because the king has noticed his sadness. Why? Well, Artaxerxes and those kings in Persia, they were killers. You know how Artaxerxes got on the throne? He got on the throne killing his older brother who was supposed to be king. So he assassinated his brother so that he could be the king instead of his brother, 
But he didn't stay there. Someone had assassinated his father, so he caught that guy and killed him as well. So he killed his brother, and then he killed the assassin, but there seems to be a little hypocrisy there. But anyhow, don't let that get in the way of taking the throne, and he didn't. And so he was a killer. He was known for bloodshed. And so here we have Nehemiah. And by the way, Nehemiah has served this guy for many, many years. So he knows this man is a killer. And so he's afraid, very much afraid of what will happen as the king has found out what's going on. Here's something strange. Some Bible teachers will say that Nehemiah was acting afraid because he wanted the king, or acting sad rather, because he wanted the king to notice his sadness and get the conversation going. If he wanted the king to see that he was sad, why is he very much afraid when the king notices he's sad? That makes no sense. So no, he, he didn't plan on this. He was trying to do his job, but he was overwhelmed with the grief, and it finally, after four months, the king caught a glimpse of what was going on. You say, how could he go for four months? You know, you wonder how could a king, did the king really pay that much attention to his servants also? But here he did. But he's afraid. Nehemiah is afraid. And so his life is on the line here. Another reason to be afraid, just to add to to this, is Artaxerxes was the king who put a stop to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So when the first people went in 587, led by Zerubbabel, they went to Jerusalem, they started rebuilding Jerusalem, and their enemies wrote to the king, we can find this in Ezra, they wrote to Artaxerxes and they said, you need to check your records because these Jews are rebuilding Jerusalem and they have a a reputation and a background of rebelling against kings. Were they telling the truth? Yes, they were actually, because they rebelled three times against Nebuchadnezzar when he had taken over Jerusalem. And so they said, they're rebuilding, and King Artaxerxes, they're going to rebel against you just like they did Nebuchadnezzar all those years back. He looks at his records. He finds that that's the truth, and so he sends back an order saying, put a stop to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so here, not only is Nehemiah sad, and Artaxerxes has seen that he's sad, he's also upset, probably because Artaxerxes is the guy that put an end to the rebuilding and really kept everything in a bad situation. And now he's going to ask Nehemiah, why are you sad? Or he has asked this, and he's like, If I tell him the truth, which he's going to because he's a godly man, this is not going to go well because this is the guy who really, not the only one at fault, but a big part of the fault that it is still the way it is. And so this is a difficult situation for him as well. So notice as as we look at this, he says, I had not been sad in his presence, And then the king says, why are you sad? And then he says, I was very much afraid. 
And what we see in the rest of this interaction is Nehemiah's courage. You see, Franklin D. Roosevelt said this statement that has stuck with me many years after I heard it. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. Again, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. And this is what we see true with Nehemiah. And look with me, if you will. Let's pick up with verse 3. He said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter um, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give the, me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. See, Nehemiah believed that the people of God and the glory of God were more important than him. And so he responds to the king. But notice what he does. It's very short in the passage. But the king said in verse 4, what would you request? Notice what Nehemiah wrote. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then he said to the king. This man, Nehemiah, was a man dependent on God, looking to God, serving God. And he, in the middle of this situation where he is extremely gripped by fear, he turns to God and prays for God's help and God's wisdom, all in a, a short breath in his mind before he gave response to the king. It is this kind of prayer that God answers from the man or woman who prays prayers like we see in chapter 1 that we looked at last week. When we see a man who looks to God and, and acknowledges who God is and acknowledges what God has done, who is ready to confess his sin and recognize that he is dependent upon God's mercy and God's grace in his life. And when he has this understanding that this God is my God, who has made covenant with me, and that we are bound together, we as his people, and he is our God. And then he gets into this tight situation, and what comes from him is a very quick prayer and an audible prayer to his God in the middle of this situation. That's the kind of person who has the ear of God that God listens to. 
And this is what he prays in the middle of this. And we see with Nehemiah as he gives this answers to the king that his fear is very real in, in his heart and mind as he is doing this. But what is greater than his fear for his own life is the condition of the people of God and the reputation of God before the nations. And that brings a question to us today, doesn't it? What is more important to us? Oh, we all have fears. Fear is a part of life. It's part of being a human being. And yet the question is, is God's glory, is the well-being and the condition of the people of God and the purposes of God in his church and his glory among his people and beyond his people to the nations, is that more important to me, is that more important to you than what my fears are? It is interesting. You, um, you see me up here. Some of you have told me you looked me up. You uh, Googled me and whatever um, to find out who is this guy coming in here. No telling what you found there. But I will tell you this. It will tell you um, that if you count up the dates, years, that um, this week will be the end of 20 years that I will have been full-time at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And that you'll see that I was a student there. You'll also see that I pastored three churches for about 14 and a half years altogether. Although when I first went to Southern, what they put is that I pastored 14 churches in three years. And, um, you know, I just kind of blow through them. So you guys better be ready. We're going. It's going to be quick, but it's going to be, we're going to, it's how it works. And um, since you're already looking for a pastor before I even came, you understand that's what churches should do. You're proactive in this. You're already getting somebody else, and so you're ready. Like, we don't want this guy around us. Let's get moving. So I'm just saying that tongue-in-cheek. But the point is that um, when I, I've been in the church and speaking and preaching um, for many years, and in fact, I preached my first sermon when I was 18 years old. And I was teaching first and fourth, first through fourth graders, 80 of them from some projects in Dayton, Ohio, um, when I was a high schooler. And so I've done a lot in front of people. I will tell you, I'm still nervous when I get up in front of people. I um, remember my first sermon, I actually could not stop my right leg from quivering. I don't know why it wasn't both of them. It was just the right leg. But I, I, it was actually shaking, and I, I didn't want to look down to draw attention to it. But I, it crossed my mind, do they see it? Are my pants quivering also? I, was, I mean, that's what was going through my mind. And I looked out at these people, and they were, it was my home church. They knew me. I grew up there. They loved me. And yet I was so nervous. And I remember thinking to myself, I had studied really hard the passage. It was Ephesians chapter 3. It was the first sermon I preached from Ephesians chapter 3. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, what you studied and what you, you've learned in Ephesians, 
these people need to know we all need to know this. And it's more important than you. So you're here so that they'll get this. It's really not about you. And I made it through that sermon. I don't remember much about it. But every time I prepare and every time I get ready to come up, I realize that I am really nervous. And, but this isn't about me. And I just pray that I will be faithful to what God has given me to proclaim to his people because that's important. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's what he called me to. There will always be fear. And it is coming to a recognition that God has called us. Yes, he cares about us. He cares about our fears. He cares about blessing us, all those things. But he has called each and every one of us to, to something greater than ourselves, something much more important than ourselves. And that is his purposes. When you go to work, tomorrow morning, and you walk into that office, or wherever it is the Lord takes you, it may be important that you're there, and it's important that you have a job, and it's important that you fulfill the, the responsibilities that they have for you, but what's more important is what God's calling is upon your life as you walk into that office, as you walk into that classroom as you communicate with these people online, that it is much more important what God wants to do through you than what you're thinking you need to accomplish yourself. And this is what kept Nehemiah going. He realized that this is not about him. It is about God's glory. It is about the well-being of the people of God. That is what drove him. And that's why in the midst of his fear, he found courage. Because he took his eyes off of himself and he looked at the very purpose that God had brought him there in the first place. You ever thought about why you are here? We always say this is the easy answer we teach our children what is our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God. But let's be more specific. If our purpose is to glorify God, and it is, the question is, how are we to do this? And how are we doing this? And this is what Nehemiah kept in mind. Notice how he answers the king. He, says, he calls him um, uh, the king here, um, in verse 3, he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. You know, his response to the king was gracious and respectful. And it's no doubt in my mind, as I look at the king and he, the king asks him, when are you coming back? If I let you go, when are you coming back? That's a good sign. I talk about when I first started preaching. I preached my first sermon when I was 18. I started preaching at different churches when they need, uh, needed a, a supply preacher. And um, it was big time. 
and it, it didn't come very soon. It may have been one or two years. It was some amount of time before a church called me back a second time. I thought, oh, now, there, now we're on to something. Um, before that, they said, okay, we'll see you later. Um, thanks, but no thanks. But what we see here, they wanted him, the king wanted him back. Why did he want him back? Because of faithful service, of godly service that Nehemiah rendered to this unbelieving king who had really been a detriment to his people. And yet he showed kindness to him and respect to him and sought his welfare. And what we see in him is an understanding that how believers conduct themselves in this lost world goes a whole long ways of opening doors for us in giving a verbal witness to who God is. And we forget this. And we need to recognize that he did what he did in light of, I think, the teaching of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah um, gave this message in Jeremiah 29 Verse 7, when Jeremiah was preparing the people to go into exile, he said these words in Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. In the throes of his fear, Nehemiah was still gracious and respectful seeking the welfare of this unbelieving king. And that's who we need to be, a gracious people, a kind people, a people that when people see us, they want to be around us. They appreciate the kindness. But how many of us fell so miserably in this when it comes to unbelievers or strangers. I remember Ann and I noticed that we did some traveling this week. Where we lived and grew up, there was a little restaurant called Friendly's. Any of you ever heard of Friendly's? Okay, well, some of you, but uh, they're gone from up there. But where we were traveling this week, we saw about three or four of them. And um, it brought back memories every Sunday night after church well, not every Sunday night, but a lot of Sunday nights, Friendly's was the place. Why? Because they had the fribble. And the fribble was kind of some chocolate malted shake, which is wonderful, which is why I don't wear the same size clothes I wore when we were dating back then. But we saw that and we, we remembered that. But one night, we went there after church, we got seated, and around the corner from us where they could not see us was a group of people from our church. And they had already gotten there and uh, we were seated and we didn't realize until we heard them um, as, as we'd been seated. But uh, the young lady attending to them made some mistake with their order. Uh, Ann and I would never forget this. It was planted in our mind. A good friend of ours, woman in our church, she just laid out that teenage girl just like she was nothing. And this lady who did this, by the way, was involved in our evangelism program. 
And in our evangelism training, a part of it back in that day, especially, we went door to door sometimes. If we didn't have actual addresses to go to, then a part of our training was we're just going to go cold and we're just going to go door to door. And it crossed my mind. What would happen if this lady, this Thursday night, goes door to door and she knocks on the door and this teenage girl opens the door? And she says, I'm from First Baptist Church Vandalia. Well, I would rather her say, oh, this is a mistake. Um, I'm from um, the First Baptist Church of, of Wayne and get out and blame it on them instead of us. Point is, there was, she had no witness to that young lady. And what a terrible witness she was. There's something about being gracious. And this is what we see with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah recognized this. We are not to be isolationists. We need to be serving people. We need to be involved in people's lives. That's every one of us. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're full-time in ministry in a church or like I am at Southern Seminary, wherever we are, we need to be, while we're ministering where we are, we need to be ministering out in the community. We need to be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. And we need to be that light that is there and find ways to do that, to recognize that. And, and God will provide ways when you're not even looking for it. I remember years ago, I was taking my sons. Um, when I got to college, I started, again, you won't believe this looking at me, but I was involved. I started in martial arts and got very involved in martial arts. The basic thing is this. I played high school baseball. Baseball was my life since I was a child. And I got into college, and I needed to work out. And at first, I started playing tennis, but I needed a partner to play tennis with. So I needed a sport that I could just do by myself. And I saw these uh, martial artists kind of doing their little stuff like this without any, anyone else around. I thought, well, it looks like I could do that because they're just by themselves. As long as no one hits me, I'm fine. You know. So, uh, so anyhow, I did that. Well, when my boys came along, our boys came along, I, I got them involved as well. But um, the deal is... Before my boys came along, I went to um, my teacher. They all wanted to know who I was, and I had started pastoring a church, and I said, I'm a pastor down here. And so he would, he was very cognizant of that. And I remember one time, he said he wanted us to meditate, and he went around, but he knew me. So he had us sit down, and he, he went around, and he said, now, you need to clear your mind and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm already there with that. But they keep, he comes, and he says, TJ. Um, what are you doing? I said, well, I am meditating, but I'm meditating on God's word, and I'm thinking about that, and what a great God we have, and how God is faithful, and how he sent his son to die for us. And he said, TJ, tell us about that. We're right here in class. And right there in class, just all of a sudden, unprepared, but prepared, but not looking for this to happen, I shared the gospel with that entire class in just five minutes, just quickly, what the gospel is, and this is what I think about and what is on my mind. It wasn't me, but it was about a year or two later, a man in my church led that martial arts instructor to Christ, and he and his wife both came to Christ and were baptized. The opportunity, just being out in the community, being ready 
and being very transparent with who we are. And this is, Nehemiah had this opportunity to do this. I think about this as well, that how, how God helped him in this situation. And I'm, I'm reminded of the psalm that says that the Lord is our helper. He is a present help to us. And I read the words of Charles Spurgeon, and let me share these with you in light of that passage. A help, a help that is not present when we need it is of small value. The anchor which is left at home is of no use to the seaman in the hour of the storm. The money which, is used to, um, which he used to have is of no worth to the debtor when a writ is out against him. Very few earthly helps could be called very present. They are usually far in the seeking, far in the using, and farther still when once used. But as for the Lord our God, he is a present help when we seek him, present when we need him, present when we have already enjoyed his aid. He is more than present. He is very present, more present than the nearest friend can be, for he is in us in our trouble, more present than we are to ourselves. For sometimes we lack presence of mind. He is always present, effectually present, sympathetically present, altogether present. He is present now if this is a gloomy season. Let us rest ourselves upon him. He is our refuge. Let us hide in him. He is our strength. Let us array ourselves with him. He is our help. Let us lean upon him. He is our very present help. Let us repose in him now. We need not have a moment's care or an instant's fear. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So he rested upon this. And so what did it enable him to do? It enabled him to communicate his needs. The king asked him, what do you need? What do you want? He tells him. And there are basically three things. Well, two things. One has three parts. One is this. Write a letter and give me authority. So let people know that I have the authority to do this so that it'll be safe for me when I travel. And so please write a letter for me, giving me the authority and letting people know that I am doing what I'm doing with your authority. That's one. Second, he says, contact Asaph, the guy that's in charge of the king's forest, and get him to provide wood for us. And there are three things there that he, he needed wood for. One is to um, build the fortress actually at the northern gate. And this becomes a major fortress by the time of the New Testament. But help us with that project. Second, I need wood for the, the walls and all that's around there that we need to rebuild and, and the towers and the gates. And then thirdly, wood for my own house, so where I'm going to live. So he's ready to go when the king asks him. He knows what he needs, and he lays that out there. And what we see here is his courage, but also he's ready. He was prepared. He knew what was needed, and he was ready to communicate that. So he expected God to work and open up what he needed, and he knew what that was. And so that's a part of faith, having that courage to speak to God and speak to others, this is what is needed to do the work 
that God has called us to do. Now, the other thing here is he was very shrewd in a positive way with the king. He never does say, king, you know the city that, that was destroyed and you would not let us rebuild? You know the one that you made a decree and you caused us not to be able to rebuild it and now it's a shambles and no, he doesn't, he doesn't point his finger at the king. He doesn't blame him. He doesn't even mention the name Jerusalem. You know what he does? He says, king, the city of my father's tombs, that is in disarray. Why is that significant? You want to know something that was very important to Persian kings? Their ancestors. They were involved in ancestor worship, and they built these huge monuments, kind of like the Egyptians did with the pyramids. They, they built these huge monumental um, grave um, sites for their kings. And so it was a big deal to them. And so what he does, he doesn't point the finger at the king. Instead, he says, I'm grieved over my father's and what's happened to their ancestral, or to my, their ancestral tombs. And the king says, oh, what can we do about this? So he knew the king. He understood the concerns of the king. And he speaks in a way that the king understands. Isolationists will never be able to do that. It's only when we rub shoulders with lost people will we ever begin to understand them. I was with a friend who was, um, he was always sharing the gospel. And we were eating lunch together, and uh, the lady coming up to uh, bring our food to us, she had all these tattoos all over her arms. And my friend said, hey, tell me about that tattoo. What's the story behind that? And she, she kind of lit up. She said, well, and she started saying, well, this, this represents... I, when when uh, my mom passed away, this is just a m memory for me of her and reminds me of her. And then this is about my best friend here. And she walked away and um, a after he spoke to her a little bit about them and, and he said, that, that's really great. And it was just kind of a getting to know her at that point. I could tell what he was doing. But when she walked away, he said, they all have stories. He says, they all have stories, and those tattoos are usually, there's something behind them. They're not just some random thing. And uh, he says, that opens a door to get to know them and to, to maybe share the gospel with them. But the idea, it's not, you say, that well, that's manipulation. No, it's looking at a person and saying, I'm interested in you. I care about what's, what you care about. And Nehemiah understood what the king cared about. And so he made his request, and he receives the king's favor. And it is interesting here that in verse 8, it says, The king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army of horsemen. Now let me close with two things. One thing is this. Um, if you look back in Ezra, Ezra made a trip under the Persian king, and the king there offered to give him troops and uh, people to keep him safe on his trip, and Ezra said, no, my God is strong, and he can protect me. I don't want your help. 
And so Ezra says, I won't receive your help, and he goes off. Nehemiah, the king says, I'm going to give you soldiers to go with you, and he says, fantastic. And why? Because this will show God's power and God's glory that he has moved the heart of this king to support the work that God is doing. And we're like, hold the horses here. No pun intended. That just came out. But anyhow, hold the horses here. Because the thing is, Ezra says, no, I want to glorify God. Nehemiah says, yes, I want to glorify God. And it's amazing that both of them were blessed by God. What's the point here? We don't need to put God in, in, in some kind of puzzle piece that it has to fit just the same way for everybody. What, was, what concerns God most is the heart of the person to, to glorify him. And Ezra says, I'll glorify God by showing I don't need the soldiers. Nehemiah says, I'm going to glorify God by showing that the soldiers are in support of what God is doing. And we need to be careful in our ministries and our lives to say everybody has to do it exactly the same way I do to give glory to God. Because what God looks at is the heart. And if our heart is, it has the desire to glorify God and to honor him, God will bless the person with that kind of heart. And so that's what we see. Well, to close this, what do we see in the last two verses? Or last verse, rather, um, verse, verse 10. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And here we see the enemy Nehemiah awoke. We will not do the Lord's work without the enemy standing against it. That's just, that's just a given. And we are in a war. It's a spiritual war. It's very real. But we don't fight with fisticuffs. We don't fight with verbal abuse or attacks. But our fight is in the same way that Nehemiah fought. He fought by seeking the welfare of the people of God and the glory of God. That's our fight. Our fight is to seek the welfare of the people of God, Christ's church, who loved his church and gave himself up for her, to have that kind of love for the people of God. And secondly, that we would glorify Christ above all else. That that's who we would be. That's how we fight the war. And that's what Nehemiah did. And the enemy we're going to find, they're going to try everything they can, and they will lose because of what Nehemiah said, that God, God's hand was upon him. And when God's hand is upon you, the enemy can't touch you. They can't do anything. And that is when we seek his glory and his way. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness to your people. I pray that we would be faithful to you. That we would truly seek the well-being of your church and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And that, that would supersede any fears that we have, anything that would slow us down, anything that would distract us. Lord, may it be that you are first in our hearts and minds, that your church would be built up to the glory of Jesus Christ, and that Christ himself would be honored and glorified through us. Father, I pray that we would look at our lives and our hearts, and if there are fears that are keeping us back, I pray that we would confess them and that we would abandon them for something that is much greater, and that is your church and your glory among your people. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.